In your imagination, I want to ask you to put yourself in a doctor's office, in an eye doctor's office, and you're sitting there in the chair, and I want you to think about the things that you experience and the things that you go through when you go to see the eye doctor. The reason I ask you to do that this morning and to try to put yourself in those shoes is because this morning the title of the message is A First Century Vision Test. Now, probably whatever it is that you're imagining is going to be much different than a person would have experienced in the first century uh, vision test. There's two prominent things that would be different, although we probably could sit and make a long list of other things that would be different. One would be technology. Uh, the last time I went to the eye doctor and I sat uh, in the chair and the, the eye doctor came before me, he had all of these instruments, all of these machines and, and pieces of technology that he put this thing in front of my eyes and I thought like it was so advanced, I thought I was going to see the future when I was looking through that thing and, and there's so many moving parts, I was just mesmerized by it. The second thing that I remember the last time I went to the doctor uh, was the number of questions. I think I answered 4,000 questions the day that I went to see the doctor. Does this one look better or this one? I would answer the question. Does this one look better or this one? Does this one look better or this one? Can you read the top line? Can you read the bottom line? I was like, I don't think anybody can read the bottom line, to be honest with you, but all of these questions. So that's a little different than a first century vision test in, in two ways, the tools. This morning, we're not gonna be using these fancy machines or modern technology. We're gonna be using two simple tools as we think about a first century vision test. And we ask of ourselves in the book of Colossians, how was Paul viewing certain things? But the second thing that's different is the number of questions that we're going to ask. If you have your notes in front of you, you see we're only asking two questions. We're not asking 4,000. We're not even asking 1,000. We're just asking two questions this morning as we apply a vision test to the Apostle Paul. If you would, open in your uh, Bibles to the book of Colossians. If you're new to the church, that's in the New Testament. And whether you're new or you've been here for a while, I want to extend to you an offer as people find the book of Colossians in the New Testament. If you are here and you need a copy of the scripture, it would be our honor to give you a copy. We know a lot of people like the digital copy on your phone or on a tablet. Uh, but if you're here today, uh, whether this is your first time or 100th, and you just say, you know, I just need a copy, a printed copy of the scripture, then connect with me at the end of the service so that we can gift you a copy of scripture. We believe at the fellowship, the greatest investment we can make in your life uh, is to share with you the word of God. And so that would be a great way for us to do that if you need that. So this morning we are applying a vision test to the Apostle Paul. Not modern technology, not a bunch of questions, two simple tools, two simple questions, and two verses this morning as we launch into our series walking through the book of Colossians. Look with me if you would at these two verses, which are going to be the verses that we're studying this morning. Chapter 1 of Colossians, the verse 2 verses says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father. Now we're going to pause there. This is where our message is coming from this morning. If you're a long timer in the church, you may be thinking to yourself, message, wait, that was just the introduction. Get to the meat, right? Get to the theological stuff. No, there's a lot to study this morning from just the introduction, just these two verses. And so this morning, as we apply this vision test, to the Apostle Paul, the first thing that we're going to do, the first tool that we're going to use is a mirror. We're going to take a mirror, we're going to hold it in front of the the face of the Apostle Paul and say, when you look into this mirror, what do you see? The first question that we're answering is, how did Paul view himself? Now, aside from what Paul is about to answer in verse 1, I want to say to you, in the modern world, in 2023, that is still a relevant, important, critical answer for you to get to, not as it relates to Paul, but as it relates to you. Who am I? How do I see myself? You know, one of the scandalous things that comes with searching for a new job is being in the interview process. And sitting down or Zooming with somebody who's interviewing you and has the power to give you a job or at least move you along in the process. And you know at some point they're going to ask you the scandalous question. Tell me about yourself. What do you say when somebody says, tell me about yourself? Well, see, the answer to that question is important. How you see yourself is a really important thing, not just for you in life, not just so that when you go to this interview, so that you can do a great job on the interview and go to the next one, but theologically, the way that you understand yourself is incredibly significant. And so this morning, we're asking the question, how did Paul view himself? We're going to answer that in two ways, both from verse 1. Firstly, if you're making notes this morning, write down in your notes that Paul viewed himself as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. As an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that word, apostle, is a churchy word. And if you haven't been in church a long period of time, you may look at that word and you may go, apostle. I've heard that, but I have no idea what that means. And if that's where you're at this morning, if your newness to the church scene or to the things of faith causes you to say, I don't think I really know what the word apostle means. I just want you to know that you're in good company. It's one of those words that we throw around all the time, but we have a hard time pinpointing exactly what it means. And so this morning, for us to really appreciate what Paul is saying when we hold that mirror in front of himself for that vision test and say, what do you see when you look in this mirror? I want to define for you what it means to use the word apostle. Apostle means that the apostle is someone who is sent on behalf of and carries the message of someone else. I want to say that to you again. An apostle is someone who is sent and is a representative and is bringing a message on behalf of someone else. Now, in addition to defining the word, I want to share with you some implications of it because it's one thing to define something, isn't it? It's another thing to say, okay, that's what it means. Why is that significant? And I want to share with you why that's significant. This morning, if you're making notes, I'm going to give you three words 
that are implications of the way Paul thought about himself when he said, I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first word, if you're making notes this morning, would you put down in your notes the word submissive? When Paul looks into the mirror and he's introducing himself in this letter to this church at Colossae and he's saying, here's who I am. This is the author of this letter. Here's how I see myself. Here's how I define myself. Here's how I identify. I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, okay, what does that mean? It means he understood he was submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ. It means he wasn't the, the lead in the relationship. He was the one who followed. He was the one who watched and responded to. He was the one who heard from and responded to. When you are an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, like Paul was, Paul was not in charge of where he went and who he spoke to and how he ministered to people. He was the submissive person in the relationship as it relates to Jesus Christ. Now, I know that's a jagged little pill for some of us to swallow because some of us have chosen to organize and orient our life so that we will be submissive to no one. And I want to say to you this morning, if that's where you're at, I understand why someone would go there. Maybe you've been through relationships and you've been hurt or you've been damaged or you've been traumatized or, or people haven't respected you or people have dishonored you. And so you've taken this place in life where you say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to live submissive to anyone anymore. I understand how you can get there. But in the same breath, I have to say to you that the only way we move forward with Christ is in the submissive posture. And so as Paul says, I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're giving him this vision test, right? Like, how do you view yourself? He says, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that he is submissive. Second word, if you're making notes, that means he is empowered. Because when you are an apostle, when you are sent, representative, carrying a message, you not only take the message, you bring the authority of the one who sent you with you. And so Paul's understanding of himself, very much so is that I'm in submissive posture before the Lord Jesus Christ, but where I go, I go with the authority of heaven. I go with the authority of God Almighty. The third word, if you're making notes this morning, is the word anchored. Anchored. Paul understood that his identity was anchored to his relationship with Jesus. Back to that scandalous question right at the interview. Tell me about yourself. If you were to hear that on an interview today or tomorrow or this week, what's the first thing that you would say? How would you anchor your identity to someone else? For Paul, it was a no-brainer. I am anchored to Jesus Christ. I am his apostle. I am submissive to the Lord. I go where he wants me to go. I preach when he wants me to preach. I am empowered, but I am anchored 
to the Lord. Now that's the first way that he describes himself as we take this mirror, right? We're doing a first century vision test. We take the mirror, we put it in front of the apostle Paul. We say, Paul, when you look at this, what do you see? He said, I see an apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on, still in verse one. Look with me in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. There's that second phrase, by the will of God. Second way that Paul understands himself and his identity is by the will of God. Now I wanna give you another three words. These words describe Paul's understanding of the will of God. First is unique. Paul understood himself to have a unique calling from God himself, and that's different than the general calling, right? If, if you were to come to me today and say, Pastor, I, I just need to know what God's will for my life is, there would be some ways that I could answer that would be true for everybody sitting here today, all of you online with us, and all of you that will ever watch this video back in the next 4,000 years. Like there's just some general things that are true about what God's will is for my life, to seek God. Right, that's the will of God, to love God, to love people, to seek the Lord. All of those things we could say are the general will of God for all of us, but Paul knew that God had a unique will for his life as well. And what that means is that there's some things that God has called me to that he hasn't called you to. He's called me to be a lead pastor. Presumably he hasn't called you to do that. If he does, praise God, it will help you find that position. He's called some of you to be doctors and some of you to be educators and some of you to, to stay at home and, <clears throat> and raise kids. Students, he's called you to be on campus and be a representative for him, <clears throat> whatever school you're going to. So the idea is that the will of God is something that is unique. And evidently today it's the will of God for my throat to be crazy. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for whatever reason you're doing that. <clears throat> but unique, also if you're making notes, unique, comma, Paul understood that the will of God for his life was also significant. God was calling to, to Paul to do something big. Go be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. But perhaps the most encouraging word that we can write under this umbrella point of the will of God is that it was knowable. How much time have you spent in your life just going, God, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to date? God, do you want me to be married? Do you want me to go into this career or that career? Do you want me to go here or there? Do you want me to do this or do you want me to do that? We spend a lot of time laboring over what God wants with our life. And I know that oftentimes God doesn't reveal that as quickly as we want God to. I understand that, but I want to encourage you this morning by telling you that the Apostle Paul's life is a living testament that God doesn't want you to be confused. Paul knew that the will of God was unique, was significant, 
and was knowable. And he's telling the church, this is who I am. I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus by the will of God. And so sometimes when we talk about the will of God, we get, we get amped up, don't we? We get excited about it. We're like, yes, God has a will for my life. I want to know what it is. I'm going to pray and fast until I know what God's will for my life is. And then God reveals what he wants with your life. And you go, wait, what? And if that's ever been where you're at, you're like, God, just show me what to do. And then God shows you what he wants with your life. And you kind of balk a little bit. You're like, wait a second, God, you got the wrong person. I just want you to know you're in good company. Like all the prophets responded that way almost, right? Uh, Most of the disciples responded that way. So many people respond that way. Uh, And so what I wanted to do is give you some thoughts about the will of God. And so I looked, I want to share with you what Billy Graham said about doing the will of God, because I find it to be so encouraging, because I'm like you. I look at Paul, and I go, man, Paul was stoked about the will of God. Paul was passionate about the will of God, and then I want to get passionate about the will of God, and I see the God-sized vision that he lays into my life, and I go, oh, wait a second. But Billy Graham said this. It's so good. He said, the will of God will never take you to where the grace of God will not sustain you. Isn't that good? I wish I would have thought up that sentence. (laughs) The will of God will never take you where the grace of God will not sustain you. And so is is the will of God a God-sized vision for your life? Yes. Can that create our heart to jump and skip a beat? Probably. But the will of God will never take us where the grace of God will not sustain us. J.I. Packer, modern theologian, brilliant man. He says this about the will of God. It is the high and privileged calling for all believers to do the will of God in the power of God and for the glory of God. And so I encourage you with that this morning as we're just still in verse 1. And we're doing this vision test with Paul saying, Paul, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? And Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm submissive and empowered and anchored to Jesus. And my life isn't what I want to do with it. It's what God wants to do with my life. And sometimes we're really excited to say that. And sometimes we feel threatened to accept that perspective from Scripture. I just remind you that it is so worth it to yield to the Lord. So as, as we're to summarize, right? Because when you go to an eye doctor visit, they do all of these things and then they come back and they give you the summary of what they find. So I'm gonna give you the summary of what we find when we do a, a first century vision test of the Apostle Paul. This is what I wrote down in my notes. The, Paul's most fulfilling, truest and significant life was the one in which his identity in Christ was primary and it shaped every other part of his existence and it was determined by the will of God. I want to say that to you again as we summarize this first portion of Paul's vision test and he looks into the mirror and we ask the question, what do you see? And we see the answer in verse 1. Paul's most fulfilling, truest, and significant life was the one in which his identity was primary in Christ and it shaped every other part of his existence and it was determined 
by the will of God. That's how Paul viewed himself. Now, if we take away the mirror, right? We're halfway through the vision test. We take away the mirror, and then we put in front of Paul this little wooden church that somebody built and then painted real pretty, and we we show him a picture of the church. We say, Paul, when you see the church, and I guess I should be clear because I don't really mean the building, right? But the people, like when you think about the people at Colossae who are followers of Christ, how do you see them? When you look at the church, what do you think about? That's the second part of this vision test that we're going to be looking at this morning. Verses 1 and 2 give us the answer to how Paul views himself, but also how he views the church. And before we look at it, I just wonder, how do you view the church? Like if you were to look out at the people of God, how would you... How would you think about the church? It's an interesting question, isn't it? How do I view myself? How do I view the church? How do I think about the people of God? Verse two is gonna answer that for us. Look with me, if you would, in Colossians chapter one, verse two. So Paul has introduced himself in verse one. Now he goes to verse two, and he says, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So you see in your notes, there's three things that we're gonna say about Paul's view of the church. They're not surprising. They're all right there in verse two. All three of these things are right there in verse two. I'm gonna give them to you just quickly here and then we'll go back to the first one and we'll make a couple of comments. First, he calls them saints. When he addresses the church at Colossae, he calls them saints. If you're making notes, number one, saints. Secondly, faithful family. He says to the faithful brothers. Now I wanna be clear with you, Paul isn't excluding females. But when you use the word, the Greek word for brothers in the Greek in in that time, that was used to say all of you. So when he says to the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, he says to all of my family in the kingdom of God here at Colossae. So he's not excluding anybody. In fact, it's a very inclusive term. He's talking about all of the faithful family of God in Colossae at the time. And then the third part of this phrase that we see in verse two is the phrase, in Christ, in Christ. So we have saints, we have faithful family, and we have that phrase, in Christ. And we're gonna treat each one of these before we turn and ask the question, okay, how does this truth call me to action? How does verses one and verse two call me to action? How can I apply this in my life? Why does it matter how Paul viewed himself or how he viewed the church? But first, let's talk about these. The first one is saints. And I want you to catch this because the way that we think about saints in our culture and in our time space is very different probably than the way that Paul thought about saints. In our world, if you call somebody a saint, they're like a level above the everyday Christian, right? We have saint so-and-so or saint this and that. So-and-so is a saint of this thing and -and so-and-so is a saint of this thing. And so if you ever were to get the, the designation saint attached to your name, it would be like you are above all of us regular everyday Christians. That is not the way that Paul was using this phrase. For Paul, we're all saints. 
You say, what, even me? Yeah, if you're in Christ. So now, students, when you go to school, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you can sign your name. Saint, turned in by Saint, and put your name. When the teacher says, hey, what's going on with this? Pastor Zach said I could do it. (laughs) Oh, moms and dads are never going to bring their kids back here. (laughs) No, but Paul says we are saints. And there's a a disconnect, right? There's a confusion because oftentimes when we think of the word saint, we think perfection. That has nothing to do with that word. In fact, that word literally means perfection. One who is set apart and belongs to God. That's what that word holy means. The holy ones of Colossae weren't the ones who never sinned anymore or were who perfect in all ways at all times. It was the people who were set apart from God. You're a saint if you're in Christ. If you belong to Jesus, you're a saint. And so Paul is reminding them, you are holy and you've been set apart and you belong to Jesus. You are different in this world. You are holy and different and set apart. That's why we sing that song, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We are saying different and set apart. Holy different are you, O God. And if God is set apart and different, then his people are set apart and different. And so that word literally means little holy ones. We are Saints, we are also faithful family. I will not spend a ton of time on this because we talk about this probably at least once a month here at the fellowship. But when you are in the kingdom of God, you are not part of just some monster organization. You're a part of a family. And it is no surprise that when Paul writes to this church, he writes to them in a familial way. He says to my family to the faithful brothers, to the brothers and sisters, to the family of God in Colossae. When Paul looked at this church, and if we take away the mirror and we put in front of him a picture of the people who are at Colossae and we say, when you see this, what do you think about? He would say, I think about saints. I think about people who've been set apart and belong to Jesus. And when I look at these people, I don't just think about acquaintances. I don't just think about people who worship the same God I worship. I think about people who are my family. That's a big picture. That's a strong view of the church. And he goes on to say, my faithful brothers in Christ. And I want to just linger here for a moment because you may have grown up in church and you've never distinguished this before, or you may be here like a really new person to spiritual things and you need to hear this. This is eternally significant stuff, what I'm about to tell you. Being in Christ is the most, and I've thought about this a lot, I don't think that this is hyperbole or generalization, I'm talking about literally. That's the most important designation that you could ever have in your whole life. Your eternal destiny depends on whether or not you're in Christ or not. And for a long time, I thought being religious meant that I was in Christ. 
And for a long time, I thought going to church means I'm in Christ. But I want you to be clear this morning. When Paul says in verse two, look with me in verse two, and I want you to see this with your own eyes. It says, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. I think it's important that you understand what he means when he talks about people being in Christ. Because there's a huge misunderstanding that to be spiritual is to be in Christ, or to be religious means to be in Christ, or to be a regular church attender is to be in Christ. Now listen, being spiritual is good. I consider myself a spiritual person. I consider myself a religious person. I I think being religious is good. I think church attendance, obviously you know how I feel about that. All of these things are good, but they don't mean you're in Christ. When Paul says, In Christ, he means that you have turned from your old life and you've put your hope and your faith and your trust and your allegiance. You are stepping into Christ. It isn't just that you believe that Jesus existed. It is that he is becoming your identity. You are in Christ. Now, there's a lot of, I use the phrase churchy words. There's a lot of churchy words that swim around this concept. And one of them is repenting of your sins and turning from your old life. And that's, that is a true and biblical concept. If you're going to be in Christ, you have to repent from your sins. And if you're going to be in Christ, you have to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. So I just wanted to be clear this morning that this is such an important point. And isn't it weird? That's like two words in the English. It's like in Christ and it keeps going. But it's so eternally significant that I plead with you this morning. If you are not in Christ, please let today be the day that you put your hope in Jesus. That you put your faith in Jesus. I want you to be in our family I want want you to be a saint of God. I don't want you to just be a religious person. I want you to have hope in Christ. I want you to live eternally in the presence of God and with the saints of God. And so if today is the day that, that you need to do that, I just want to say it very plainly to you. You're invited today to be in Christ, to put your faith and your hope in Jesus And I don't care if you've been around church your whole life or this is the first time that you're here and you're here on accident. It doesn't matter to me where you're at on the continuum of spirituality. Today is a day that you can put your faith in Jesus and you can be in Christ. And I invite you to do that today. If you're ready to do that, see me after the service. We'll talk about that together. That's the most eternally significant thing you could ever do in your whole life. And so Paul, we've looked at two things, haven't we? We looked at Paul's view of himself. We've looked at Paul's view of the church. This is a first century vision test. Paul, what do you think about yourself? Paul, when you look at the church, what do you see? Paul says, I see saints and I see family members and I see people that have gone from being religious to being in Christ. That's how Paul sees the church. And with the time that we have left, if you're still in your notes, you see that the last thing that we have is a life-changing call to action. And here's why that's important to me. 
Because the last thing I want you to do here is learn stuff, but it not help your faith. It's to know stuff, but you not to grow spiritually. So what I want for us to do is take all this stuff that we just learned about Paul and his vision test with a mirror when he looks at the church, and I want for us to say, okay, that's Paul, what about me? And so I wrote this kind of in first person, like I was walking through this because I've been struggling and going through what I need to go through in order to be able to do these calls to action as well. And there's two of them really this morning. I want to share them with you and speak a little bit about them before we close today, because I want to give you some practical steps of what do I do with this information that I've been discovering over the past 30 minutes. Firstly, if you're making notes, write this thought down. I will discover, commit to, and walk in God's will for my life. I will discover, I will commit to, and I will walk in God's will for my life. And if I could just pause for a moment as you hear me say that, I just want to acknowledge that this truly is the place where the gospel comes crashing into modern society and forces us to choose. I realize that whether we are 90 or nine or somewhere in the middle, that we live in a culture and a context that says to us, don't let anyone tell you who to be. You be who makes you happy. You, you be however you want to be. You determine what your life is going to look like. I understand, uh, students, if you're listening to me this morning, that what I'm telling you might be rather foreign to other voices that you have in your life. But quite frankly, students, the adults, the same way. Like we just live in a culture where the idea that we would submit to someone else's vision for our life is quite frankly disgusting and off-putting and bitter. So I understand that this call to action takes courage. You have to trust the one that you're yielding to or else you'll never be able to do it. And so as we look at Paul's life and we hold that mirror up for him, and Paul, when you look in this mirror, what do you see? And Paul says, I see someone who has yielded to the will of God, you have to ask yourself, am I willing to do that? And I love us. I, I love the people around us. Like I, There's so many things about our culture that I love and appreciate. But I'm, I'm just telling you facts. This is where the gospel confronts the modern worldview, and we have to come to this moment of decision on how we respond to this. Will I have the courage to yield to the will of God for who I am, for what I value, for how I understand myself, for what I'm going to be about with my life's ambition? And so I read to you that long sentence that I about Paul's truest, most significant, most fulfilling life. So what I did is I turned that into first person and I wrote this uh, for me. My most fulfilling and truest and significant life 
is the one in which my identity is primary in Christ and it shapes every other part of my existence and it's determined by the will of God. My truest, most fulfilling and significant life is the one in which my identity in Christ is primary and it shapes every, else, every other aspect of my existence and it's determined by the will of God. That's a big deal, folks. That is the point where the gospel challenges our existence to yield to God or to not. And I hope this morning that you will choose wisely. I know past experiences make it hard for us to trust someone outside of ourselves with our future. I know that our worldview can make that challenging. There's a hundred reasons why this could be hard. But I bring it before you and plead with you to consider that releasing yourself into the hands of Almighty God is the greatest thing that you could ever do. Unknown? Absolutely. <laughs> because we have no idea what God will do with our lives and how he will shape us. But it's the wisest decision you could ever make. The second call to action, I will choose in full view of all of her imperfections to see the church as Paul sees the church. Now for us believers who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, this may be our moment of conviction uh, from Paul's perspective of church. Because we may have just experienced so much church that all we see is the pain, or all we see is the problem, or all we see is the mistake. And to be clear, there's plenty to look at. If you and I wanted to sit down and write a list of the ways that the modern church has failed, we would need all the pins in the room. Like, we have just dropped the ball a lot. I'm not saying that. Again, saint doesn't mean perfect, it just means holy. But sometimes we get so drawn to the things that the church has failed on that we fail to see the church the way Paul sees the church. Is it imperfect? Absolutely. But the church is holy. Make mistakes? You better believe it. But the church is family. And so some of us have been carrying such a negative view of the people of God. And maybe for, for reasons that are true, maybe your bitterness towards the church or your anger towards the church is illuminated or fed by realities that are accurate. Like maybe you look at this specific thing about the church where we have fallen and we have sinned. And, and, and if we're not talking about the fellowship specifically, but just the modern church. And you may look at that and say, look, there's the church failing. And yeah, we fail. But Paul's vision test isn't that we're perfect. It's that we're a holy family. And the common denominator that draws us together is the lordship of Jesus. And so as you look with open eyes at the failings and the misgivings and the sins of the church, don't close your eyes to that. I'm not asking you to act like there's nothing wrong. There's plenty that the church and our culture needs to address. But as you see that, can you still 
see the holy family that is bound together by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I submit that that to you this morning, believer, that maybe you needed that reminder. Paul was well aware of all of the sin of the church. Most of the time when he wrote a letter to the church, it was to correct their sin. And yet he called them saints. And yet he called them family. And yet he reminded them that they were in Christ. Would you bow with me this morning as we close our time together? I want to end by once again inviting you to be in Christ. You may have walked into this building this morning feeling like this was a regular everyday Sunday and here God is working in your life, prompting you and calling you to yield your life to his lordship, to turn from your old life and put your hope in Jesus, to become a follower of Christ. And if the Lord is at work in your life right now, and you may be online with us or maybe here in this room, and as we were talking about what it means to be in Christ, it may have just... It may have just dawned on you. I'm a religious person, but I'm not in Christ. What I'm asking of you this morning is at this very moment that you would cross that threshold. That you would say, this is the moment that I'm putting my faith in Jesus. This is the moment I'm pledging my allegiance to Jesus. And if that's where you're at this morning, would you just take a moment, even if it's silent prayer, to just say that to the Lord. Lord, I turn. That's what the word repent means. It means to turn. Lord, I turn. I repent of my sins. And I put my trust in you today. I want to go from being spiritual to being a follower of you, Jesus. If you need to do that this morning, would you do that right now? If you don't need to do that, would you just pray for the people in the room or the people online who are trying to find the courage to take that step? Lord, give them the courage this morning to yield their life to you. we have this posture of prayer this morning can I just ask you to pray about this if if someone were to put a mirror in front of you give you a first century vision test how would you describe your identity would it be anchored to Jesus and yielding to the will of God Oh, brother or sister, you may be struggling with that this morning. And this may be where you really need to come before the Lord in prayer. If you were to see a picture of the church this morning, 
what would your view be? Lord, we're thankful for the word of God. We are in awe, really, that in two introductory verses, there's so much richness and theology that not only informs us, but shapes our spiritual life. Lord, we thank you for the book of Colossians. We look forward to exploring it in depth over the next many weeks. But even this morning, as Paul talked about the way that he saw himself, the way that he saw the church, you've given us so much to think about. Help us, Lord, to discover and commit and to walk in the will of God. Help us, Lord, to see in all of our imperfections the church the way that Paul saw the church. We are so thankful for one more day of worship that you have gifted us to come together to celebrate the victory that we have in you, Jesus. Study the word of God, to love one another, to encourage one another, to spur one another on. Thank you, O Lord for the kingdom of God here on earth that you brought and that you left here when you established the church. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.